Thanks, guys. I invite you to take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Matthew chapter 2. Uh, there were um, a number of Afghan um, refugees that were here at the Nativity last night, and I didn't know that the uh, all those boxes had been delivered to Mike's house. I was just thinking maybe we could have an extra scene at the Nativity and just have them go over to his house. Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. Familiar passage, if you are familiar with the Christmas story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we who saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy." And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Lord, we ask your guidance as we open your word this morning. Help us as we look at a familiar passage to remind us of familiar and perhaps new truths as we reflect on it today. In Jesus' name, amen. As you come to this passage, I want to just paint the scenario of the scene. And of course, we've been in a series sort of looking at some of the classic texts of the Christmas story of Jesus being introduced to individuals. And as we continue that, we're now coming to a scene that actually has taken place close to two years after Jesus' birth. If you think of all the events where the shepherds were, were directed by the angels to go and see the Christ who had been born in a manger there outside of Bethlehem, it's two years later. And as this has taken, these two years have gone by, apparently Joseph and Mary have stayed in Bethlehem. They have set up his carpentry business. It's a new town for them. It's a town where they are beginning their lives as a, a new couple. And this is life has been going on. So we're now looking at all those events we've looked at in the, in the angelic, uh, coming to Mary, coming separately to Joseph, coming uh, in Nazareth, coming now in Bethlehem, the hosts of angels that have come to the shepherds. It's two years in the rearview mirror that we see those events, which actually is astonishing because 
here they are, and this young family has settled into the town where all this took place in what appears to be absolute obscurity. And we might wonder, how is this possible? I mean, these angels, apparently the, the word used of host usually represents thousands of angels, have appeared in the sky. These shepherds have come, and all this has taken place. He's even been dedicated in the temple uh, to Simeon, where another revelation has come a few days after his birth to, to Simeon. It's happened, it come to Anna, an older woman there. I mean, all this is going on, and here they are setting up carpentry shop two years later in a town that most people think had a few hundred residents five miles from Jerusalem. And as we reflect on this, we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 2, two years later, and this scene in Herod's court affirms that Jerusalem basically slumbers in spiritual ignorance and indifference of the fact that the Messiah just down the road is growing up and is now a toddler right nearby. We might ask the question, why? I mean, how, how, how is this possible? And I would suggest that though there are astonishing miracles associated with Jesus' entrance into the world, it was not God's intention to use a megaphone to announce the birth of Jesus. He did that with individuals. He did that in astonishing, miraculous ways, but he did it selectively and uniquely. He told shepherds who actually weren't even qualified to go into the temple because they were considered unclean. He did it to an obscure, obscure young carpenter. He did it to a woman, both born up in a town of about three to 400 people in, in, the, uh, in the northern part of Galilee that had no relationship to Jerusalem whatsoever. He did it selectively, uniquely, and he did it in the same way when he told the guys that we're going to read about here in Matthew chapter 2, these guys called the wise men. This is such a vital view of spiritual reality. God must move first in revealing himself. It's not by wisdom or goodness or zeal or religiosity that people encounter Jesus. God makes himself known to people. He does it beautifully, and it brings incredible comfort to us. First of all, if you have embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is because God has moved into your life by his grace. If you're here this morning and you say, well, it hasn't happened to me, and I, don't, I, you know, I, it's, I, I, just, I hear about this, but as far as personal relationship, well, the very fact that you're here, the very fact that you're under the sound of, of biblical teaching is indication that God is moving into your life to one degree or another. And you say, well, I'm only here because my family makes me come on Christmas morning, and it's the only way I get to go out to lunch. You're still here. And I would suggest God is pursuing. We certainly see that in these pictures. In these Christmas encounters, we find that God has revealed his son and his entrance into the world with different features highlighted. To some, 
in these, in these miraculous revelations, he has been seen as the Savior for sinners. For some, he is the, the prophesied Messiah. As to some, he is the one identified with broken people. I think that's the primary focus in, in, in Matthew chapter 1, where he shows the lineage of, of Jesus, and he, and, he, and he has him appearing to this young, um, probably late teenaged carpenter named Joseph. Here he comes and is presented as a king. It's not surprising in the context in which he's presented and to whom he's revealed. But as we look at this, I want to just think of three aspects of Jesus being received as king. And we're going to see the first one here in verse 1 and 2, the threat of Jesus as king. Let me read to you again verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, the interesting person that this news gets to is a guy named Herod, who is the ruler of the Jews. Now, when you come to the palace and ask, where is the king, it is going to alarm the guy sitting on the throne, especially this guy. Now, I was a history major. I love history. To me, I love the stories. That's what history is to me. But I know not everybody loves history, so I'm going to say this at the beginning. I'm going to spend a little time giving you some history. I think it's going to be worth your while, but hang with me, okay? Herod is actually a man who is known as Herod the Great. Herod the Great has, at this point of his life, is about 70 years old. It, it, actually, he's going to die within the next year, a couple of years. Actually, he's going to die within um, just about a year. He has been on the throne for almost 35 years as the ruler of Judea, Idumea, some of the other areas that are along the Mediterranean Sea where he is located. He is ruling, but he is not under an independent rule because he is answerable to the, the oversight of Rome. But he's still, he's the ruler. Now, here's what took place. In 60 AD, the Romans reached the farthest they ever reached in their history after four centuries, they began to reach farther eastward. They now came to the very easternmost part of the Mediterranean Sea, to the land that bordered the Mediterranean Sea, a land that we know as Palestine or the Holy Land. And along that eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, and if, you could, if, you've, if you've ever done Bible stuff, you know it's divided. There's a, the little body of water up here that's called the Sea of Galilee. There's a bigger body of water down here that's the Dead Sea, and they're both inland from the Mediterranean Sea, okay? Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, and there's a river that goes down, the Jordan River. Most of this area is an area called Judea. There's an area called Samaria and Syria. All that was a part of it. But down here below the Dead Sea, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, there was this land called Edom. When the Romans came in in 60 AD and began to try to take over this whole region, there was a ruling party. They were Jews. They had been ruling for 103 years at the time. 
They were called Hasmoneans. It was a family of Jews that, that had tremendous influence. And they basically had their own little kingdom. It's where the, the, the Jews lived. When the Romans started encroaching into this area in 60 BC, the Edomites, again, this group down here to the eastern part of the, the Dead Sea, and the area was now called Idumea because the Greek form of Edom is Idumea. The Idumeans supported the Romans, particularly two prominent members of the Idumeans, the Edomites, a guy named, uh, well, I won't even, I'm not going to give you too many names, a father and a son, the son who was Herod. Okay, you with me so far? The dad died. Herod became the primary mover shaker anti the Jewish establishment. Even though he was familiar with the Jews, he was uh, very familiar with the Jewish traditions, the teachings, all that stuff. But he became the local supporter of the Romans coming in. Eventually, the Romans completely vanquished the, the, the Israelite stronghold and, and ruling family. And not surprisingly, in 37 BC, Herod sailed to Rome and was installed as the, and, and conferred with the title by the Senate of Rome with this title, King of the Jews. Hated by the religious establishment, the Jewish establishment for now decades, He was a man that tried during his reign to win the Jews over. He did things like he actually rebuilt the temple and expanded it. That's why in Jesus' day it was known as Herod's Temple. He did many big building establishments and port cities. He was known as Herod the Great, largely because of the, the way he expanded the influence of, of this part of the, 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 the empire. He actually, he was married, but he took a, a second wife who was a Jewess, and she was a member of the Hasmonean dynasty. She was trying to, he was trying to curry favor with the, the fam who had been over the Jews. But basically, the overwhelming priority in Herod's life was to protect his throne. It was his greatest ambition. Anyone who posed a threat was removed. Anyone who suspected of disloyalty lost their properties and holdings. Even though he is known historically as Herod the Great, he was despised in Jewish records of the day. He did things like this. He had two brothers-in-law killed because he felt they weren't loyal. He killed his mother-in-law, who was one of that Jewish ruling party. He also killed his Jewish wife because he thought she was being unfaithful to him. Over a period of years, he killed three different sons, the latest of which was the very year that the wise men showed up in Jerusalem. Okay, so here's a guy that you don't want to come in and say, Hey, where's the one that's, that's the rightful heir to the throne? Where's the real king of the Jews? 
it's not surprising at all to see Herod's internal response to the wise men. It's totally in character. Now, it's interesting if you read the text, the wise men don't first come to the palace. That's how we all think of the story. That's how I think of the story. But basically, the wise men are in the town of Jerusalem. About 80,000 people are in the town. And, and while they're there, word is getting out that these mucky mucks from Persia have come and they're asking, where is he that's born king of the Jews? And not surprisingly, it, it says that Herod was disturbed. This may be one of the classic understatements of history. He was disturbed and the whole city's disturbed. What is this? What is going on? The first thing Herod do, does is not bring the guys in for a conference. It says he first consulted the scribes. He knew enough of the scripture to know there were all kinds of Old Testament prophecies. So he says, where is the one that is supposed to be born king of the Jews, the son of David? He, he knew the Old Testament promises of a Messiah. Where's he going to be born? They said Bethlehem, which was just down the street from Jerusalem. Then he brings the wise men in. And he's, it says it's a secret meeting. This is not a public audience. It's a private audience. He's meeting with them secretly. And it's interesting that he does not do what we might expect him to do, which is to take these guys and to basically put them on the rack and say, where is he going to be born? What do you know? Where did this, what do you, how did you find out about this? No, he doesn't use power. He uses guile. He just says, oh, I'm, 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 I'm excited about what you're telling us that, that the king of where is he going to be born? Because I want to go and worship him too. And so they promise apparently that they'll, tell, they'll come back and tell him. Of course, as you know the story, the angel says, don't go because he's going to try to kill the child. So they leave. But here's this scenario. Herod is doing everything. Why? He is determined to not share his throne with anybody. No interlopers, nobody else coming, nobody going to tell him who his, who, who's going to be his heir to the throne. Nobody's going to threaten him. Nobody is going to come and unseat Herod from his own throne. I believe, and remember, of course, all of the records we have of the Gospels are chosen by the Spirit of God from thousands upon thousands of stories and accounts that could have been told to us. I believe one of the reasons God chose us this account is to just give us a picture of what goes on in our own lives when the king comes to the door of our lives. King Herod's reaction to Christ is, in a sense, a picture of all of us. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he is the king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on a throne. Romans chapter 8 says an interesting thing about us. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. When it says the mind that is set in Romans chapter 8, it's talking about our natural state. Uh, before we, we embrace Christ and his changing uh, nature in our lives, he says this is our natural state. We are hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The focus I'm highlighting is this word hostile. The word hostile means literally that we are at, at, at war. That God is an enemy, a threat. He's trying to take over. 
At the core of the human heart is the impulse. No one tells me what to do. There is a natural enmity of the human heart against all claims of sovereignty over it. It rises a little when minor claims are made over us, but Jesus' claims of authority are total. He says, I come as the king. And this picture we have of Herod is is the fact that when Jesus offers himself to come into a person's life, and there is the beauty of grace, and there is the beauty of, 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 of forgiveness, there is also the reality that if I yield my life to Jesus Christ, if I say yes to Christ, I am saying yes to him as Lord of my life. There is a threat of Jesus coming in as king. Tim Keller says it beautifully, I think, this way. He says this, we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our lives. We may use religion to stay on that throne, trying to put God in the position of having to do our bidding because we are so righteous rather than serving him unconditionally. Or we may flee from religion, become atheists, and loudly claim that there is no God. Either way, we're expressing our natural hostility to the lordship of the true king. Jesus comes to earth as king. And it is threatening initially to our natures to say, what do you mean I'm not in charge anymore? What do you mean he comes in as, as Lord? I'd, I'd, like the, I, I'd like the free bus ticket to heaven, but what do you mean? Well, it's part of embracing Christ as Savior of our lives. The offering of Jesus is interesting in this passage. He's offered to people near to the truth. I mentioned that Herod was raised in this area of Edom, or in the day it was called Idumea. And historical records of the time indicate that Herod came from a background that was very familiar with the Israelite teaching. As a matter of fact, Edom by this point had sort of been, even though they were a separate cultural state, they largely did practice the the Israeli faith, at least many of them did. He was familiar with the scriptures. He knew the religious system of the Jews. His response to the statement, where is the one that is born king of the Jews, is not what I would have expected. You know, this is a guy who has been declared. I mean, I think what he would have done, what I would have expected him to do was, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And he runs into his inner palace office and he brings out this plaque. And he says, do you read this plaque from the Roman Senate? We declare that Herod is the king of the Jews. What do you mean, who's born king of the Jews? But he doesn't do that. Why? Because he knew what the term meant. He was familiar with the concept that there was a coming king on the, that, would be, that was heir to the Davidic throne. He knew he was not that. He knew there were promises. He knew truth. And Herod was aware of these things. He knew the promises. He knew the prophecies. And when he heard the message, Herod was confronted with a choice. Will I find out if this is the real one in order that I might yield my life to him? Or will I view him as a threat coming after the throne that I want to sit upon both physically and in my life. There's a second group of people where Jesus is offered as king. 
it's talking to them as, and I'm calling them the people far off, and this is verse 1 and the whole section about the wise men from the east, that we see a couple of things in how God moves into people's life that seem far off. These are people that may not have that same level of, of spiritual awareness that a Herod would certainly have living just a few miles from Jerusalem. These are the wise men from the east. And as we read this passage, we hear that what has drawn them is a star that they saw, a bright light in the sky. There are different perspectives of what this is. I'll just say that the two most prominent ones that are presented, one is the fact that there actually was, at this time historically, a uh, conjunction of planets. It only happens once every 800 years. Uh, Johann Kepler in the 1600s saw it again. It's where Venus and, and Jupiter sort of combine, and they, they, they both double their light and bright light in the sky. And he postulated that it was this that happened because he looked back and saw the centuries, and he said this was right around the time in which Jesus was born. It's possible it was something like that that God used it's possible also, as many have conjectured, that this was another manifestation of God's Shekinah glory, the, the, the pillar of fire by night that led the Israelites. It sort of argues for something like that because it's pretty localized, right? I mean, when you come and, and, and all of a sudden it disappears, and it, when these guys get to Jerusalem and they don't know where to go from there, and then all of a sudden it shows up, and, and it takes them right to the very place five miles away when it reappears to Bethlehem. But whatever it was, it was something where God moved to make himself known to these men. We find also that God moved with creativity, and this is my favorite part of the sermon. We, these wise men were called Magi is actually what the word wiseman is translated from. The word magi is the word we get magic from. These were prominent people. It explains why Herod was not inclined to put these guys on the rack or to try to, to, try to powerball them. These were prominent people. Magi were the individuals that studied the stars. It's interesting, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is called a magi. He was an individual that interpreted for the kings. They were counselors for kings. They were individuals that, that, that focused at, uh, particularly on, on the stellar beings. They were, in that sense, astronomers. The word astronomer, astro, stars, nomos, means name. They, they named and categorized them. But they also were astrologers. They studied the stars. They tried to derive messages and meanings from it. Both terms, astrology and astronomy in the Magi, were combined together. They had incredible influence in their cultures. As a matter of fact, their nickname was kingmakers. They were the ones that would actually uh, have to pass on the coronation of kings in Persia and Babylon. And these men came certainly with great fanfare and regalia, and the gifts they give to Jesus are astoundingly valuable. They come as prominent individuals, but their focus of life, their language, is the stars. God speaks to them in their own language. 
God makes himself known in a place that most people would have had no meaning, no value. No, they wouldn't have got it, this bright light. They recognize something there. The language of these men, the students of the heavens, are where they looked where others would not. Don Richardson has written a few books. Don Richardson was a missionary in Erie uh, uh, and Jaya, I believe it was, many years ago, and he, and he ended up becoming a mission executive. He's written a number of books, and one of the books he calls he is written is called Eternity in Their Hearts. It's a book that is, uh, the title comes from Ecclesiastes 3.11, where it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. His argument in the book is that, and it was his experience on the mission field, and he chronicles missions experience after missions experience of others that he talked to, that God in every culture has placed uh, this, this language, this revelation of himself within uh, even the most seemingly dark and pagan of religions. Eternity in their hearts is basically his argument that God creatively makes himself known to people. He uses the illustration, if any of you have read the story Peace Child, it's a perfect example. He was dealing with a tribe that was that utterly had seeming no values of biblical Christianity. As a matter of fact, the highest thing they valued was the uh, practice of betrayal. That the more you could win someone's friendship, whether it was a friend or a, a, a particularly whether it was a native tri- a neighboring tribe, and you could deceive them into thinking you were at peace, and then you could kill them was the the highest level of uh, merit that you could gain. Betray- how do you how do you try to communicate the gospel to people whose value system seems to be completely topsy turvy to biblical Christianity and, and biblical faith? And so for for years, he was laboring there, and one day there was a great tribal conflict between tribes that had been betraying each other for generations. They were were going to war, and in the midst of the warfare, the tribe that he was familiar with decided to end the battle, and what he did was he actually, the chief, brought out his infant son and offered his infant son uh, to the opposing tribe. And Don Richardson was aghast. He didn't know what was going on. And then he found out as he talked to the chief and others that the only way you could end conflict between people was with the gift of what they called the peace child. It had to be the son and the king had to be willing to slay the son in the presence of, or he could give, it it was up to the other. And, And Don Richardson said, here was the visual that God, this redemptive analogy, as he called them, the redemptive analogy was built into the culture of these people, and he used that to present, this is what God has done. He has provided peace with you who are at war with him through the offering of his own son. And Richardson argues that in every culture, there are these redemptive analogies. The picture that I think we're reminded of with the wise men, is the creativeness of God in reaching people. It's why God seems to be just 
completely unlimited in the creativity he can use. He uses dreams with some people to just awaken in them questions. He uses failure. He uses setbacks. He uses other people. He uses uh, inner disquiet. He uses all these different ways. And sometimes, with wise men, he uses stars. I remember sitting in a doctor's office years ago, and it was a time where I was deeply burdened with some individuals in my life. I just hungered to see them embrace Christ, and I just didn't see any movement. And in this doctor's office, I picked up a magazine as I was in the waiting room, and I began to read, and it happened to be about a, a doctor of philosophy. And this doctor of philosophy was talking about, um, he had as a, in his doctoral program, he was a specialist in the existentialist, and the existentialist, um, Albert Camus, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, these individuals, and if you've studied existentialism at all, I actually love existentialism uh, as far as, I mean, it's totally dark. I don't mean it's Christ-centered at all. But they're honest, and the result of existentialism is to say, basically, in ourselves, life is meaningless, that we can't derive a purpose. That, I mean, it's very dark and empty. If you just study honestly existentialism, it has no answers, and it says life is like that. And it's why the, the whole concept of the absurd and the theater of the absurd is all associated with existentialism. This guy was studying existentialism, and as he studied it, and as he meditated on it, and as he, and as he did his paper and his, his doctoral defenses, he was struck with the emptiness of life. And it was that which caused him to go back to his Sunday school roots and to think about what he had heard there, about, about, about Christ's coming. And, and, and the title of the article was this. Wait a minute. I, wonder, I, I thought I would remember it, and I don't, so I'm going to read it. The title of his article, oh, I know what it was. I was led to Christ by an existentialist. I love that. And I cried. I sat in the waiting room and I just felt like the Lord said, Mark, I'm very creative. I'm very able to move in the lives of people in ways, I mean, who would have thought? Yeah, here's a good evangelism plan. Read some uh, uh, Albert Camus some. What in the world? How can that possibly? It can with a God that can take stars to bring people 1,200 miles away to come and be drawn. God is so sovereignly creative in working in people's lives. The beautiful hope for us is The answer to the question, yeah, but what about people that have never heard, you know, that haven't grown up in Jerusalem like Herod did? Well, God has a way of working with his redemptive analogies and his creativity with the wise men who seem to be living in the most steeped darkness of the vestiges of the Persian Empire where nobody knows the gospel has gone to make himself known. The result is 
what our responsibility is then, the embracing of Jesus as king. It involved pursuit of him. The Magi had to leave their homeland to go to Judea, a journey of between 1,000 or 1,200 miles. It's why when they first saw the star and they actually get there, it's somewhere between a year and two years that they've, Herod has learned that much because that's the age of the kids he's going to kill in, in Bethlehem in trying to wipe out Jesus. They were God-seekers responding to the light they'd been given. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, it says this, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is the response that God asks. Be a seeker. If God is real, God is able to make himself known. If God is real, and, and maybe you're here today, or maybe you're listening online, and you say, well, I don't know. I, I grew up in the church. It didn't work for me. And, 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 but I, I do sort of wish, you know, I would like to have a God. I would like there to be a God. I would like to be a God. Then look for him. I challenge you to go to his word. Not because, and, and don't go with your Sunday school class eyes. Just go to the scripture. I mean, if he's real, if he's big, if this is possibly his book, he can certainly make himself known to you. You might also be surprised this the unusual ways he'll show up as well. He is a creative God. He is able to make himself known. But don't just sit back waiting for a zap to come. Be a seeker. Listen, look, pursue. God speaks in the languages of astrologers with stars. God speaks in the language of, of pagan warlike people with a, with a redemptive analogy that speaks exactly to the picture of Christ. God is creative and God can make himself known if you seek him. The other thing we find is it involved bowing to him. It says this in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is after they left Jerusalem and they're sort of waiting for something to show. They don't know where to go. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Again, maybe the greatest scene for me the one I love the most, certainly not most theologically important scene, but it's my favorite scene, is where the wise men, kingmakers, fall prostrate before Christ. They did that. Herod didn't. Herod had more knowledge. He had more biblical truth. He had more opportunity. He did not want to yield the throne. It's the one constant reality in the life of anyone that ultimately rejects Christ. People with great revelation that have been given to them, people with very little revelation, but there must be the willingness to, to cede the throne of our hearts to Christ. He comes as king. Maybe you know him, and maybe this morning his challenge to you is, you know, I, I'm not just designed to be your, your bud, and I am your friend, and I am your brother, and, and, but I'm also your king. Or maybe you've not embraced Christ. Maybe you've not really 
gone to the other side of the glass is just sort of a look in because you really haven't been willing to say, Lord, I need you. I want you. I'm willing to give you the throne of my life. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it's going to look like. But Jesus does come as Savior, but Jesus also comes as King. Lord, we thank you for your willingness to creatively work in our lives. We thank you for the creative way that you pursued every one of us that names the name of Christ as Savior and King. Lord, keep doing that. Do that in the heart of all those many, many hundreds of people that are represented in each of our lives as people we just long to see, know you, love you, bow the knee to you. Lord, creatively pursue them, I pray today. In Jesus' name.